sound of no pool uh yes so pool can't make it this week um we've just moved the studio and we're trying to figure out how to get him on skype and down here into the studio obviously as well so until then you're stuck with just me i'm afraid um so let's get on to business uh we've got forum up now on the website and we've finally chosen the skin we wanted and got it all up and working Although we seem to be getting infested by spam robots of some sort, so I'll get some sort of plug-in and sort that out. But yeah, feel free to join up. We'll start uh, setting up categories and all that kind of thing. Um, obviously, we've got MySpace. Get us at sittingnow.co.uk. No, that's wrong. Get us at MySpace forward slash sittingnow. Um, yeah, so this intro is going to be a bit short because I'm probably quite boring on my own. But uh, yeah, this week's guest is Nick Pope who's uh, our first British guest. <laughs> All our guests, and our next guest actually, have been American so far. <laughs> so this is the first one we've had that's uh, actually British, but he's really cool. He's, if you ever see documentaries on like the History Channel or National Geographic or anything like that um, about UFOs, any kind of you know extraterrestrial or you know unexplained phenomena in terms of UFOs, you'll see him. Uh, he's written a few books, but we'll see. We'll talk a bit about that in the interview. I actually did the interview with Paul um, in the new studio, but we, <laughs> it was <laughs> uh, it's a long story, but basically we forgot to record the intro and the outro, which was a bit stupid of us. But, um, and yeah, one thing you'll notice as well is that Paul isn't as bad as he was last week. Last week, God, the Are You Serious interview, <laughs> you may have noticed uh, a particularly long uh, question from Paul at the, towards the end, second half of, of the interview, um, but we kind of... Uh, and we actually edited that down. <laughs> so you can imagine what it was like at the time. White knuckles, as I can say. But anyway, yeah. So, yeah, Paul will be in the interview, but just not in this intro. Next week, we've got a really, really cool guest uh, as well, which is cool. Uh, Dean Hagland. He used to be in the X-Files. And uh, he's got some really cool stories uh, to talk to us about. And he's making some cool films. And, yeah, that's going to be really, really cool. So uh, just, uh, check out that one. And thanks to him. And thanks to, to Nick Pope as well. So, uh, without any further ado, let's roll the, uh, the interview with Nick Pope. Hi, Nick Pope. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Although some of our listeners might not know who you are, could you give us a kind of brief biography of what it is you do, um, how you got involved in ufology? And... Sure. I used to work uh, for the Ministry of Defence, and... Um... I joined in 1985 and only left in 2006. I had a 21-year career there. And for three years there, one of my uh, various jobs, they move you around from from post to post, uh, one of my jobs was actually to research and investigate the UFO phenomenon. Now, that's something I did for the British government. Um, uh, So it was my official job Mm. at the, the MOD from 91 through to 94. Uh, and after that, uh, I, I felt it was, it was such an interesting and um, important subject that I felt I couldn't turn my back on it. So I've continued my research and investigation in, in a private capacity. All right. The, I, 
from what I've uh, read in interviews, I think the department you worked in had quite a funny name from the, uh, in the MOD. Was it? It, it's changed its name <laughs> over the years. Um, when I when I joined, it was called Secretariat Air Staff. Oh, right. um, it's now retitled itself. I mean, of course, the MOD, like all government departments, is constantly uh, reinventing itself yeah. and having um, bureaucratic um, uh, overhauls and things. It's now called Directorate Air Staff. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so when you joined the department, um, you were—I guess—you were just assigned it then. If uh... yes, I, I really had no prior um, interest in UFOs, no particular knowledge, no belief. Um, to me, this this was just another, albeit a very unusual one. But to me, it really was just another posting. Um, part of the, the cycle of, of um, civil service postings, you, you would expect to, uh, to move either on level transfer or, or on promotion every uh, two, three, four years, something like that. And um, in, in fact, I, I was working in a different part of, of um, what was then called Secretariat Air Staff. And then I was seconded during the first Gulf War into um, the Joint Operations Centre. Uh, doing a watchkeeping job, so we would do sort of twelve-hour shifts. Mm. Um, and whilst there, I, I uh, was working for someone who I established a pretty good working relationship with. He, I think, came to see that I was a safe pair of hands. I could always be relied on to do uh, do short-notice night shifts if if there were any to be done, uh, that sort of thing. So he said, "Look, I, I know that you're looking for a move." Um, after the, the, the Gulf War, um, why, why don't you, instead of moving to another division, transfer from one part over to his section? Uh, and so effectively, I was headhunted into the UFO job. But uh, like I say, no, no prior knowledge or belief. Yeah. So you say you, you're a skeptic. Would you say you're still a skeptic now? I guess I was probably, um, I suppose you in strictness, I, I was more of an agnostic than, than a sceptic. I, I really didn't know enough about the um, uh, phenomenon to take a, a view, but I certainly didn't um, join with with any any belief in little green men. <laughs> and uh, would you say that that's changed now since you've been researching the subject? It, it, it has changed. My, my belief has, I, I think, evolved, and although I'm not, I, I'm not going to Sort of stand up and say yes, I am absolutely certain that we're being visited by extraterrestrials. I I certainly can't rule that out, and I certainly now view the UFO phenomenon in a very different way mm. um, to to when I first started. I think when I first started, I thought it was all going to be um, aircraft lights, weather balloons, and um, a heavy odd nutcase. <laughs> um, but now, whatever the UFO phenomenon is, I'm certainly convinced that there are some serious defence, national security and flight safety issues. And, and I, I say that on the basis of, A, having had access to the archive of, of files, and B, through having investigated the, the two or three hundred cases a year that, that came my way uh, during my tour of duty. Yeah. So, what, uh, it's a bit of an odd question, but what would, what would an average week be like for you working at the, uh, in the MOD um, UFO group? Well... I think it's probably easier if I sort of take an average day. And, okay. <laughs> uh, but, but having said that, it really was a case that um, no, no two days were um, the, the same. And that's indeed one of the attractions of the job. You never, you never quite knew what, what was going to happen next. But I think what, what a typical day would entail is, is um, getting in um, at, say, 9 o'clock and then checking checking the signals. We, we used to get um, UFO information. We had a reporting system whereby if anyone reported a UFO uh, to a police station, to uh, a military base, or to a civil airport, and, and those typically are the sorts of places that people do contact, uh, those, there was a standard operating procedure whereby the, the material, the information would be taken down and then it would be sent on the MOD, sometimes in the post, sometimes with military signals uh, being sent. So the first thing was just to check um, the, the signals to see if there had been any sightings um, reported 
overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then again, um, I'll, I'll come on to the investigative methodology yeah. perhaps a little later, but um, just to give you a typical day. Then, then the first post would arrive, and the post might contain, um, again, more UFO sighting reports, or it might typically contain um, letters uh, from, say, school children doing projects about UFOs, um, from, from people demanding to know what the MOD knows or thinks, um, that sort of thing. So, so I would get um, I would get a mixture of sighting reports and correspondence. Then, then I might get a phone call from uh, the press office to say that there was a media inquiry, uh, and again. Uh, did we have a line that that we could give the press on a particular story? Hmm. Um, then there might be some meetings. Um, typically, I, I would work very closely with various Air Force specialists on, on this issue, um, radar specialists, for example, uh, also colleagues in the defense intelligence staff. So, so there might be meetings where we would look at our policy to, to see if we thought we were going in the right direction. Uh, to brainstorm any interesting cases we had. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a, a whole mixture of things. Mm. Um, and, and indeed, sometimes you would get uh, phone calls. If somebody phoned the MOD and asked to, to you know, have a number of, to report sightings, they, they would be put through. So I might end up speaking to someone who'd had a sighting. It could be a member of the public. It could, as it was from time to time, be a police officer, um, um, someone in the military, or a commercial airline pilot. So it's a whole whole mixture of different things. That's what made the job quite interesting. Yeah, it sounds like it. Oh, you brought it up earlier, actually. I was, <laughs> the next question I was going to ask you was about the methodology you used to uh, actually investigate the cases. But if you could talk to us a little bit about that, maybe. Sure. Um, the basic investigative methodology was something like this. We knew historically the sorts of things that people misidentify as UFOs. Um, And we knew that both from previous MOD experience and indeed from the experience um, of the United States Air Force when they had uh, a similar project to ours, codenamed uh, Project Blue Book. And because we knew statistically that most UFOs turned out to be misidentifications, um, what we could do is basically get a list of all the things that people do misidentify and then check for them. So, for example, the first thing um, to do would be to look at the date and, and location of the sighting um, and go go to the big map of the UK with all the uh, commercial flight paths uh, listed with all the military airfields uh, on there. Uh, and things like that, and then cross-check that with something called um, NOTAMs, Notices to Airmen. Um, This was a system whereby any unusual aerial activity, be it a a sort of military exercise at night, um, dropping flares, say, or or anything, a sort of hot air balloon festival, uh, a micro-light, competition, anything slightly unusual out of the ordinary uh, would be in the NOTAMs because, of course, you, you have to notify both civil and military aircraft operators yeah. of, of anything like that. So we would um, cross-check with the map, uh, check with the NOTAMs. Uh, then we'd look at astronomical data. Again, I mean, if, if you're talking uh, nighttime sightings, uh, we would have a- access to astronomical data um, about particularly bright stars and planets, um, any meteors, fireballs, things like that. Then we could check uh, satellite activity, um, both routine satellites and indeed something slightly out of the ordinary, like re-entries into the Earth's atmosphere of of space debris, that sort of thing. Um, Meteor showers, fireballs, uh, etc. Then, of course, comes radar, um, Air Force specialists could um, help us with that so a routine question would be was anything tracked on on the radar we could get the tapes looked at we could get them sent to us if there was a photo or a video uh, again there were technical specialists um, imagery um, people who could analyze and enhance the footage so it's a a series of um, it's not quite like the x-files no running (laughs) around with guns and torches and things it's much more 
checking against known um, aerial activity and indeed just using a bit of common sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and sure enough, in most cases, after you've gone through that process, you can, with a fairly high degree of certainty, tie up the UFO sightings with something uh, that you're able to um, position in, in terms of location and date. And it might be aircraft, aircraft lights, weather balloons, meteors, bright stars and planets, airships, uh, lasers and searchlights reflecting off low cloud, all sorts of things. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you, um, so you, I guess you'd kind of uh, remove a lot of these claims or uh, sightings rather through this kind of process. How often would you actually find something that, um, that you know, you, you couldn't explain? It was probably about 5% of the cases. 80% hmm. um, of the cases we could explain um, as misidentifications with fairly high degree of certainty. Another 15% of the cases um, were, were cases where we really didn't have enough information to make a firm assessment. Yeah. Um, sometimes people, for example, would report significantly after a sighting and not even recall the exact date. Um, and again, if somebody was reporting something um, more than about a month in the past, there would be no way of checking, for example, the radar data, because unless something unusual is shown, is picked up on radar at the time, normally the old data would only be kept for a month. So that was certainly the practice when, when I was doing the job. So, yeah, 80% explained, 15% insufficient data, 5% unknown. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, <laughs> I, imagine, I mean, when we see the X-Files or these you know or films about ufos whenever you sort of see the uh places that the ufos always seem to appear it's always like hicks in america and uh in sort of strange places what were the um people like that you would uh that would report these claims to you oh um anyone and everyone i mean it really was um a, a mixture there was a wonderful line in the film close encounters of the third kind where i think uh uh, they say something like ordinary people in extraordinary situations. I mean, it really is anyone and everyone. Um, it's, it ranges from uh, school children, um, doctors, lawyers, factory workers, teachers, police officers, pilots. Um, there, there's really no category of, of um, uh, person that I can think of that hasn't had a, a UFO sighting of some sort. Yeah. Were there any particularly kind of like recurring characters, you know, people that would kind of turn up and keep reporting UFOs that you could just tell were? We certainly had our, our regular correspondents. Um, sometimes they were people who uh, I think were actively involved in the UFO community. So you could, could argue that they were predisposed to, to, to all this and had a, a belief and an expectation. And sometimes you got the impression with some of these people that every aircraft light um, was was an alien scout ship and every airship um, was a mothership. <laughs> um, and, and add to that, we had um, regular characters who, uh, I'll choose my word carefully, certainly colourful characters. <laughs> um, uh, I, I suppose you, you could say that they had a, an obsession with the subject, uh, not necessarily a, uh, any personal sighting, but um, uh, an interest in it, um, they would phone up and uh, um, give you your uh, give you their latest theories about the, the subject, or sometimes um, uh, actually accuse us of being part of a cover up. And um, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll ask you about that later. Actually, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, um, so so yeah, there, there were one or two people who, when you picked up the phone and they said, "Hello, it's Mr. X." I would inwardly groan. I'm going to be on the phone for another 10 or 15 minutes. And, and with, with some of these characters, you, you just have to try and find an excuse to get them off the line at the end of things. One thing, I mean, again, going back to the, the X-Files, uh, in, in, this, in this series, the, uh, the department that Mulder works for is often it's like shoved down in the basement and people tend to kind of mock it. Was, it, was that similar in your, with your department? Was it seen as a bit of an odd odd area to work in or within? Well, yes, it, it very much was regarded as um, the, the quirky kind of uh, post. Um, and, and indeed, I was doing that job at just around the time when the X-Files was, was becoming 
popular. Yeah. And the, the parallels were made. I mean, people did literally say, oh, you work in the X-Files department, don't you? <laughs> um, and, and people did actually call me, call me Spooky, the same nickname as um, Fox Mulder. And uh, occasionally I would walk down the corridor and I would uh, hear people whistling the theme tune. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah. it it did have a little bit of a quirky reputation, but having said that, of course, it was it was something that fascinated people as well. Yeah. Uh, people would come up to me in the canteen and say, "Come on, any, any interesting new sightings? Um, you know, what what what's really going on?" Um, so it was a whole whole mixture of different reactions. As for being in the basement, though, it couldn't couldn't have been further from the truth. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, we were up on on the eighth floor, which is about as high as it gets. Oh, right. Yeah, that is pretty I, I had Literally, out of my office window, I had a great view of um, 10 Downing Street. Ah, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, also related to the, um, to the X-Files, it seems that the American cases are much more colourful. They seem to have all sorts of uh, abductions and uh, cattle mutilations and uh, little green men. Are the uh, English cases uh, much more serious than the Americans? What are the differences? I think there are similarities and differences um, if, if you look at um, Britain as opposed to America. I mean, I think inevitably national characteristics come in, and I suppose you could talk about the British Reserve and things. So um, perhaps um, some of the more outlandish cases um, don't actually get reported at all because people are more afraid of... of ridicule and disbelief here whereas in america it's it's such a multimedia society and everyone seems to have an opinion on everything that, <laughs> that people are maybe more frank about speaking out but having said that we do have um some some quite interesting cases here in the uk and although the mod doesn't have many cases on its files there are a number of um abduction uh, reports in the uk i mean i've, I've probably looked in into about a hundred cases, um, most of it in a private capacity after I left that particular MOD post. But uh, so we do, I, I think national uh, characteristics, um, I, I, I suppose, have an impact on how people report things and, and um, how people interpret their own experiences and, and belief obviously has a, a part to play. But there are, there are similarities, too. I mean, I can point to um, similarities in abduction cases in, in Britain and America, for example. I was interested, actually. We're going to go uh, to a break after I ask this question. Um, well, after you, you answer this question, and then uh, we'll come back to some more of the, uh, the famous cases you looked into. But why did you end up leaving the uh, MOD? I was promoted. Um, I'd done three years. I'd uh, gotten a series of fairly good reports. Um, so I applied for and was successful in a promotion. Um, three years was about average um, for a, a posting back in those days. And if I hadn't left on promotion, I was probably due for a level transfer anyway. Um, I, obviously, I was very pleased to have been promoted, but uh, there was a part of me, of course, that was sorry to be leaving uh, what was an absolutely fascinating job. And, and although I went on to do some... some uh, other exciting uh, things in my MOD career. Uh, there was nothing quite like that again. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I carried on my uh, research, but in a private capacity. Yeah. Did you, I mean, do you find it um, that not being a member of the MOD now hinders your research at all? Or do you find that now you've got a bit more time to look into sort of specialised areas? It swings and roundabouts. Obviously, when I was at the MOD, uh, particularly, of course, when I was doing that job, I, I could quite literally pick up the phone and ask uh, Air Force officers to check the radar tapes um, for a particular time and location, and it would be done. If I had a photo or video, like, like I say, I could send it off to uh, specialists and get it uh, analyzed and enhanced. Um, now, if effectively, I'm, I'm working just as in, you know, another member of the public might do. I've got no, I've got no access to that specialist advice and expertise i suppose because i've got um i suppose a, a profile in the media that's that gives me some advantages and yes and as you rightly suggested in your question obviously now i no longer work uh, for, for the government at all um i i have a little bit more time to devote to this and uh, yes i mean the fact that uh, i've got contacts on various national newspapers and uh, with with 
TV news programs and things gives me a little bit more clout when it comes to maybe getting uh, getting something uh, looked at if, if I want it done. Okay. Well, we're going to go to a break now. Um, uh, we're going to play a couple of promos and uh, for other podcasts and some music, and we'll be back after that. Opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of kind of educating the public to understand what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy. Let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warrentown Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Zane Warriors. Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Merlin from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. Hi, welcome back. That was Unwound um, with the song No Tech from the album Challenge for a Civilized Society. I think that's out on Matador, but I found out it was a free download, so I'm assuming we can use that. Right, so back to the interview. We asked uh, Nick about the uh, recent release of documents to the National Archives. There was a, a dedicated website set up uh, to host this because the French government did this um, last year and their website crashed under the weight of hits. There were so many people trying to log on. So they set up a, a special website, which was nationalarchives.gov slash UFOs, a special part of the website. And um, within, within a couple of weeks, 
uh, within two, two to three weeks of that release, um, there had been 1.7 million downloads of material. So I, lot, yeah. absolutely immense interest in this subject. Yeah. So I mean, what um, could I mean? I, I guess these are the kind of reports you were dealing with when you when you worked for the MOD. I mean, what can you? How are these kind of documents laid out for someone that hasn't actually seen them? They're in a, eight separate files, and they're available on the website as um, PDF. All right. Um, now, most of the files that have been released in this first batch are simply citing reports dating from most of them of the early 80s. So most of the material in there is just one or two page summaries of, of what was seen. And of course, as we discussed earlier in the show, a, a lot of it, of course, is, is quite obviously fairly mundane. It's, it's clear uh, misidentifications of mainly aircraft lights, uh, stars, planets. And, and meteors. But in amongst uh, that mundane material, if, if you're prepared to wade through those 2,000 sheets of, of um, 2,000 separate pages or, or, or so, there are some more interesting sightings, including uh, cases where the witnesses are police officers. Um, there are a couple of cases where pilots uh, report uh, seeing UFOs. Um, and, and there's one, one interesting case where two UFOs are tracked on a military radar oh. traveling uh, 10 nautical miles in about 12 seconds. Bloody so um, it's, it's some interesting papers in this first batch. Uh, what will be, I think, more interesting, and there are going to be further releases, this is going to take four years. And the reason it's going to take so long, by the way, is that... Um, some somebody has to actually go through this manually and check that none of the information in there um, is information which should be withheld under any of the exemptions to the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. Um, most popularly, of course, people's personal details, yeah. Um, yeah. names and addresses of witnesses and other details have to be struck out. But also anything that would prejudice defense or national security. So, for example, if there were discussions in there about the capabilities of military radar systems, that's mm. going to have to come out. So, so someone's going to go through these tens of thousands of pages, uh, literally word by word, um, and, and then make sure that the material's blacked out. So this is why it's going to take possibly four years. Mm. And it's going to be a rolling program of disclosure. So we're going to, to see uh, probably a half a dozen new files or so every every month all right so i mean I, I know you've written some books and we'll talk about those later on but i guess those are kind of directly influenced by your work at the mod so this must make it a little bit easier for you to uh talk about certain cases now if they've been brought out into the public and then less classified i mean it's... It, exactly yes i i mean of course i've signed the official secrets act uh, and that binds me for life even though i've i've left and of course i take that very seriously and i would never do anything to to prejudice uh, national security hmm. um inevitably what i've had to do therefore is is confine myself to talking about cases that the mod has already released under foi or or speak generically so yes this program of of release makes it much easier for me uh to to discuss things which previously uh, i couldn't have discussed um of course what i can't do is preempt uh, the MOD on this so I can't talk about what's going to be in the next batch because I don't know um, whether some parts of it might be uh, redacted under the various exemptions so um, there are still limits of course on what I can say but uh, yes once once all this material is released it's it's going to be much easier and of course there'll be a uh, an audit trail of, of documents that when I talk about uh, cases I can just refer people directly to yeah, yeah that'd be a lot handier well one thing you mentioned earlier on is when um, you said it was interesting when you get officials reporting these uh, these sightings uh, well I mean one particular example I can think of, of that is the Rendlesham Forest case and uh, I know that you've covered this before yourself with the media and but I was, it's it's in many ways it's referred to as Brit uh, Britain's Roswell <laughs> could you explain why that is and w what actually happened at well as far as you know what happened at Rendlesham Yes, this is um, this is Britain's um, most famous UFO case by a, a long way, and it's certainly, I think, the case that uh, even the sceptics at the MOD um, regarded as the most significant and the most interesting. Essentially, um, over a series of nights in 
December 1980. A UFO was seen by military personnel based at two United States Air Force bases in Suffolk, uh, Bentwaters and Woodbridge. On the first night, um, strange lights were seen in the forest and, and a team went out thinking that uh, maybe an aircraft had crashed. And they encountered a, a UFO, not in the sky, but actually um, this thing had landed in a clearing and it was um, on three legs or some sort of tripod-like device. Um, one of them got close enough to touch the side of this thing and sketch strange symbols uh, on the hull, which looked a little bit like Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, the, the UFO then took off, and uh, subsequently the, the landing site was examined with a Geiger counter, and the MOD's defense intelligence staff assessed the radiation readings taken as, as seeming significantly higher than background. Um, on subsequent night, the UFO returned, and, and on this occasion, the witnesses included the deputy base commander, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt. Um, so this, all sorts of things happened in this case to, to make it significant. It was a multiple witness event. Um, most of the witnesses were military. Uh, and critically, of course, there was this physical evidence. I mean, afterwards at the landing site, uh, there, there were these three indentations in, in the ground where this thing had come down. And that's exactly where the radiation levels peaked. Um, and, and also there was some damage to some of the trees where branches had been snapped off as, as this thing had um, come come through. Um, so, so it's a hugely, hugely significant case. Yeah. I mean, the media, um, how did they respond to it when it, when it first got re uh, reported? This was, it was literally front page news. Um, now, of course, this happened at the height of the Cold War. Um, tension was rising because of the situation in Poland with uh, the trade union solidarity. Mm. Um, and, uh, of course, the default position of, of the MOD and the military was to, to say nothing. So there was no there was no question of going public with this sighting. But obviously, um, people talked. There were so many military witnesses that somebody uh, must have said something. And word had leaked out um, that something unusual had, had happened and something unusual had been seen. But it was 1983 when, um, under the U.S. Freedom of Information Act, researchers actually got hold of a, uh, the first um, page in, in the MOD's case file on this, which was the only thing they knew about, um, which was Colonel Holt's initial one-page report to the Ministry of Defence. But, of course, this made it abundantly clear, this report, that this wasn't lights in the sky. This was, this was a, a structured craft. This was a landing, uh, physical evidence uh, in terms of the... Uh, indentations and critically the radiation uh, levels were recorded and of course once that document um, emerged under the Freedom of Information Act um, and got passed to the press it was front page news uh, the news of the world uh, literally ran it as their front page story UFO lands in Suffolk and that's official <laughs> right that's quite interesting there was however a um, BBC report that the whole case was a hoax because the um there was a policeman who was a witness then took the testimony back then said it was a hoax and also there seems to be some um, there were some of the military men said that one of them a sergeant said that he touched the aircraft and then uh, there was someone else who said he didn't and there seems to be quite a few contradictions in the in the case is this is this all true or is it just a, a bad article from the BBC <laughs> I think with a case like this, there are all sorts of um, apparent discrepancies that do creep in. I mean, I think that's where, where you've got a case that involves so many different witnesses. Inevitably, some of the descriptions will vary and some people disagree about, um, uh, you know, who saw what. Um, dealing with the sceptical theories, there's actually the initial sceptical theory put forward was that all these highly trained United States Air Force personnel had um, mis mistakenly sighted the lighthouse, the Orford Ness lighthouse, mm. um, the beam of which um, was shining through the trees. Well, firstly, uh, many of them had been posted there for, for months, if not years, uh, and were familiar with the lighthouse. The other point is that um, Colonel Holt 
during his encounter uh, actually said that he saw the lighthouse at the same time and used it to take a directional bearing on the UFO that he was seeing. So these, uh, whatever it was, it wasn't the lighthouse. And of course, the lighthouse theory uh, doesn't account for uh, any of the physical evidence, such as the indentations and the radiation readings. There was another report, yes, um, a couple of years ago, um, a security police officer came forward and said that he wondered whether he had inadvertently caused the whole uh, incident by uh, playing a practical joke on some of his colleagues involving um, letting the, all, all the lights on his police vehicle off and um, sort of driving into the, uh, the, the forest. But again, that doesn't really add up. Firstly, um, some of the witnesses aren't even sure if this person was on duty uh, that, that day anyway. Um, but secondly, we're talking about a UFO that was seen on two different days. And, and uh, again, of course, it doesn't explain the radiation levels taken at, at the landing site. So there are all sorts of theories during the rounds, but uh, even the MOD uh, admit that this is the one case they couldn't really solve. And uh, certainly I don't think police cars and lighthouses uh, explain this. No, especially radiation. <laughs> Do you have any well, well, indeed, and that's, of course, an official assessment. You can read that. I mean, nobody has to take my word for any of this. I mean, the, the case file, um, including the Defence Intelligence Staff assessment of radiation levels, the case file's been in the public domain uh, for some years now under the Freedom of Information Act. Do you have any theories as to why there's so many contradictory testimonies when there's a, a group of people citing a UFO? Well, I think one of the reasons may be that um, because this incident happened on at least two and maybe three nights of, of activity with with UFOs, some people are literally dis describing different events. Uh, I mean, I think other other things, other factors come into play as well. Um, we're, we're talking now about something that happened um, 27, 28 years ago, and uh, when when people now. Uh, talk about it, say, on, on TV documentaries and things. They're, they're talking about something that happened half a lifetime ago, really. Yeah. So um, that, to me, it, if, if everyone told exactly the same story 27 years on, I'd be a bit suspicious. Yeah, yeah but this um, also happened in... There was a documentary where the, um, there was a group of people which made a, a new foe. It was... Some a, a gliding balloon or something like that, and um, they uh, pass it over a gathering of people, and then they took the uh, testimonies of uh, every single one of the of the the persons there, and uh, almost all the uh, testimonies were different as to the size of the UFO, the the color, or the uh, where the location and everything. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, I. I in fact, I think I I was um, uh, interviewed on that documentary, and certainly. Um, perception and belief play a part in, in interpreting experiences. But I think, you know, any police officer will tell you that um, if, if you have, a uh, say, a car accident um, with 10 witnesses, they'll all tell a slightly different story because they'll all be looking at it from slightly different uh, angles. They'll all... Um, people are people. People... Memory is a funny thing. Um, and you will get um, differences in descriptions when people are describing very real events. So, so to the skeptics that say that these discrepancies somehow invalidate uh, the case, I'd, I'd say no, just, just ask any police officer about um, witness uh, testimony and they'll, they'll tell you that uh, people are individuals and they report what they see in a different way. And uh, even something um, as immediate as a, a collision between two cars that happens, say, 10 yards away from you, um, different witnesses will describe it in different ways. I've, I've seen that myself in a, another MOD job where I was um, uh, looking at military aircraft accidents. And again, it taught me a valuable lesson about um, witness testimony. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a theory in journalism called framing theory, where if you uh, take a look at one incident from uh, different angles, you almost always get a different story or a different angle. It's quite... It's quite common in psychology as well. This kind of uh, uh, people experiencing the same thing differently. It's uh, <laughs> it's one of those uh, things that we can't really avoid. I think. 
Yes, I, I think, uh, I mean, that illustrates the point perfectly, I think. And, it, of course, it doesn't just apply to um, Rendlesham Forest. It doesn't just apply to UFOs. It, it applies to, to life. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one other case before, I was going to ask you after this, actually, uh, about one of your, my, the cases you found most interesting, but one I found also interesting was, uh, I think it was called Berwyn Mountain. I was wondering if you know anything about it. It's in Wales, and apparently that's also called the Welsh Roswell. <laughs> yes, um, the Berwyn Mountain case was interesting. I mean, it, it, um, uh, it was January 1974, I, I believe, and uh, some local people reported a, a loud explosion, um, and some other people reported lights, strange lights in the sky. Um, and initially... There, there was a, a search and rescue operation launched because the fear was that um, maybe an aircraft had crashed. So the police and the local mountain rescue team uh, actually went out and conducted a search. Um, they didn't find anything, and it subsequently emerged that there had been a, a combination of events which had probably given rise to this. Um, there was a, a, a small local earthquake uh, in the area, and also it was believed there was some um, meteors and fireballs. Now, over the years, this is a tale, I think, that has evolved in the telling. And um, now, if you speak to some UFO enthusiasts, they'll have you believe that an alien spacecraft crashed and was recovered by the military, who subsequently spirited it away to an Air Force hangar somewhere. Well, I've seen the the, the file on on this of course it was way before my time but there's no indication that this was anything other than, than a, a misidentification and a mistake um with with these different factors coming together yeah one fact, thing i found interesting because i only really kind of briefly looked at the case was uh the reporting of these things called men in black and i found is this something you've encountered a lot in your research or the appearance of the, these sort of shadowy figures that apparently emerge around ufo sightings some UFO enthusiasts sort of suggest that so-called men in black, which is literally what, what it says on the tin, guys in dark suits, um, sometimes seen in the aftermath of a UFO incident, uh, asking witnesses about what they've seen and then um, uh, maybe making threats or insisting that they don't talk to anyone. Um, it's almost part of the mythology that's grown up around this. I have come across one or two cases where this has been reported, but I'm convinced that this, this, again, is a combination of maybe a number of different things. Um, it could be that it, it's, it, it, with some cases, it could be that it's, uh, uh, say, somebody from the Ministry of Defence, um, one of my predecessors, um, making a, a field visit and, and simply interviewing the witnesses. And um, uh, whether they would have asked anyone not to talk about things, I'm not, not sure, but... Um, I, I can see that um, if I was visiting somebody, I'm sure I would have uh, dressed smartly in a suit, and yeah. probably a dark one. So it, it could it could be that uh, the men in black um, have their roots in in uh, officials legitimately investigating a UFO sighting. It may be that some of these reports, um, some of it's uh, uh, people, journalists, or local UFO groups um, dressing up and smartly and going to see witnesses to try and get a story and of course i suppose one if, if a journalist was was on the case they might ask that the, that the witness doesn't speak to someone else so they can get the scoop yeah <laughs> um the other thing that one does occasionally find is is the sort of walter mitty type character who rather likes the idea of of pretending to be a secret agent of some sort and uh, uh one one sees in the press from time to time um you know, bogus police officers, bogus social workers, bogus paramedics. It wouldn't surprise me if there were one or two people out there who didn't get off on the idea of playing at being an MOD UFO investigator. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I was going to say, um, we've talked about two kind of, I guess, more famous cases, but is there any case you could highlight to us that you found particularly interesting that uh, may not have quite as got into the public consciousness as much as these two cases we've just discussed? I think the case that stands out for me is the so-called Cosford incident. Now, this occurred in March 1993, so it was right in the middle of my tour of duty. And um, over a series of about six hours, uh, starting um, at about 8.30 on the 30th of March and finishing up at about uh, 2.45 
the following morning. There's a series of sightings from many different parts of the UK. And we had about 60 witnesses in all, of, of whom uh, some were police and uh, some were military. And uh, descriptions varied, but one of the descriptions that cropped up um, quite frequently was, was a large triangular-shaped uh, UFO. Now, um, the, the highlight of, of um, this, this whole incident was the fact that the UFO flew over two military bases in the Midlands. It flew over RAF Cosford, where it was seen by a, a patrol uh, of Air Force police officers, and then later uh, it was seen by the meteorological officer at RAF Shawbury. And he described to me how this massive triangular-shaped craft, which he described as being midway in size between a C-130 Hercules and a Boeing 747, mm -hmm. he, he said this was probably no more than 400 feet above uh, the ground, um, emitting a low-frequency humming sound uh, and then firing a narrow beam of light down at, at the ground. Um, and he said that uh, suddenly from moving very, very slowly, maybe no more than 30 or 40 miles an hour, he said suddenly this thing just accelerated away to the horizon. Uh, he said just in an incident. And when I asked him to try and compare the speed with, uh, say, a military jet, he, he said, oh, you know, many, many times, maybe 10 times that quick. Um, speed and acceleration that he, even with eight years' experience in the Air Force, had never seen or, or even conceived of. Yeah, that's quite interesting. And I, I mean, needless to say, we launched a full investigation. Um, even my sceptical head of division uh, briefed the assistant chief of the air staff uh, about this. And um, although we, we were able to tie in potentially some uh, of the uh, high-altitude sightings with some re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere of space debris, um, that obviously didn't... Um, I mean, that explained a cluster of sightings that occurred at about um, uh, 10 past 1 in the morning, but it, it didn't explain all, all the other events um, starting much earlier and finishing much later, and nor, of course, did it explain uh, the, the sort of extraordinary uh, triangular-shaped craft that witnesses, including the, the Met officer, ha had seen. And there was another bizarre little postscript to, to this story. Hmm. Um, again, I was looking at the case file only the other day. It's been released under FOI for some, some years, and there's a wonderful little detail in there that's... Um, uh, struck a chord with me. And um, after one of the early evening sightings, um, some some people were uh, going to the area where this had happened, and it was a field full of cows. And when they looked, all the cows were stood in a circle in the centre of the field, all facing each other. So <laughs> now that really is like something out of the X-Files. Yeah, that's really odd. Definitely. Oh, um before we go, I was going to just ask you a couple of like, quite brief questions, but one was, what aspect overall of ufology do you think that interests you the most, that keeps you coming back to the subject and writing about it even after you've left the MAD? I think what interests me is, is that concept that, that, you know, you've only got to have one of these events turn out to be extraterrestrial, um, and our entire world will change overnight yeah um so it's it's the it's the possibility um now i don't say that i can prove that ufos are extraterrestrial but but just that possibility makes the whole thing worthwhile um i i think if we could if we could prove that and if if we could um if, if we could get into a situation of uh dare i say uh without sounding too star trekish but first contact um <laughs> you know, our world would be a very different day the day after that took place than, than it, it was the day before. And I think everything would change, our science, our religion, our psychology, our view of ourselves, um, everything would change. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing I was going to ask you as well quickly, I was reading through your website earlier on today, and uh, you, you seem to have an interesting conspiracy theorist, and some of them seem to have dubbed you as a, uh, a, a member of the Illuminati or someone that's, uh, uh, you know, deliberately disinforming people i mean this is obviously this is was almost clearly going to happen with some conspiracy theorists because you're an ex-government uh, worker etc how 
I mean, have you dealt with people like this before that have accused you of being, con- you know, part of a conspiracy? Or oh yes, um, when I was at the the Ministry of Defence, people obviously thought that because I was on the UFO job, I was I was part of uh, the cover up. After I I began to um, write and and uh, lecture about this subject, people people accused me of of being a a disinformation agent. I don't think, with my government background, um, that I'm ever going to be able to, to shake off that, um, that that image. I mean, if, if people want to believe that, nothing I can realistically say is going to um, persuade them to change their minds. But yes, I mean, obviously through that and, and through my interest in ufology, yes, I became interested in conspiracy theories more generally. Uh, be it ones relating to the moon landings, the death of Diana, or indeed 9-11. And uh, in, in just about all cases, um, certainly from what I was able to, to, to find out, most of these theories are, are based on, on a combination of, of misunderstandings and misinterpretations and just the will to believe that something was an inside job or yeah. a conspiracy theory with, without any real hard evidence. Yeah. So because I've debunked quite a few conspiracy theories um, so publicly, um, even when I say positive things about UFOs, such as, look, we should be studying this seriously. I don't know what the UFO phenomenon is, but um, it's it's worth a look. Um, Because I've been involved in in debunking other conspiracy theories, I I think that inclines people to believe that I've got some sort of uh, debunking agenda on UFOs, but nothing could be further from the truth. I'd like to see uh, more done on this subject. I'd like to see the government and the scientific community take it much more seriously. One other thing I was going to say was, do you think that um, we've got another X-Files film coming out in July, I think it is. Um, Do you think this is going to make the ufo subject more popular again because it was really popular in the 90s like re- the early 90s especially it was huge with the x-files coming out and everyone it's only resurging this interest in um in ufos um do you think that the film might bring a again a heightened interest i mean has that has that interest public kind of consciousness uh uh sort of changed or waned in any way since since the x-files finished or the you know the popularity of the x-files diminished well, certainly in the 90s, the X-Files was hugely popular, and maybe that brought some people to the UFO subject. But ultimately, I think the UFO subject is events-led, and, and it's, um, uh, it's led by the sightings that continue to, to come in on a uh, literally a daily basis. Mm. I, I mean, I think certainly the new X-Files film uh, will probably um, lead to... to you know, some some parallels being made with UFOs and the unexplained and uh, cover-ups and conspiracies. There's always a lot of interest in that. But, but you know, the, the recent release of the first batch of the MOD's UFO files is an interesting example in itself. And the fact that the fact that, that got 1.7 million downloads yeah, within two weeks uh, illustrates that although something like the X-Files, the new movie, will, I'm sure, arouse some interest that interest has never really gone away it's always been there all right um before we go i was going to talk to you very quickly about your books um and uh, about where people can find you on the web i mean in your what can we expect to find in a nip poke book i know they're all slightly different but uh i've written four books open skies closed minds is about uh ufos and it's heavily based on my government work um the uninvited is about the alien abduction mystery, and that's more based on on private research than official work. Yeah. Uh, then I've written two science fiction novels, Operation Thunderchild and Operation Lightning Strike, and they're essentially alien invasion stories oh, um, uh, based on mixing what I know about UFOs with what I know about crisis management and war fighting uh, within government and the military. So um, those are the, the books I've, I've written, and details of that and all my uh, various uh, work strands can be found at my website, uh, which is nickpope.net. Okay, brilliant. Uh, hopefully we'll get you on again at a later date to talk more in depth about some subjects, but thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate you giving us some time today, and uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, that was Nick Pope. 
thanks a lot again to him for doing the interview. That was uh, really good of him. He's a really good guest, actually. I've found loads of that interview really, really interesting. And we're going to get him back, definitely, because we really only scratched the surface of what that guy knows. And it's, you know, I find the subject really interesting myself and not necessarily convinced by all of it. by Not by Nick, but by, you know, some of the claims you see. But, uh, yeah, we're getting back and we'll talk a bit more in depth about some things like, you know, uh, abduction and uh, cattle mutilation and all these crazy things. But uh, yeah, like I was saying earlier, next week we've got uh, Dean Hagland, who used to be in the X-Files. He's uh, the guy that looks a bit like, <laughs> he doesn't mind me saying this, I don't think, the guy that looks a bit like uh, Garth from Wayne's World, if you know who that is. He had long blonde hair, he was part of the uh, lone gunman who Mulder in the, in the show used to go to for uh, advice. But um, And he had his own show as well, the lone gunman had their own, sh- I think, 13 episode show. <clears throat> but you might be wondering why we've got Dean on. Well... Dean's uh, making some really cool films, and he's uh, definitely part of counterculture as well as you know mainstream Hollywood culture. He does all these great in, like improvised shows. Where he does like an improvised one-man X-Files show, which is really kind of interesting. So we'll talk to him about that and uh, some of his other projects he's got coming up. Um, so yeah, so don't uh, hesitate to email me. I'm loving all the emails I'm getting, so uh, keep them coming at ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Paul's uh, <laughs> still trying to figure out how to log into his email. But you can get him, or you can try and get him at paul at sittingnow.co.uk. Uh, lo- log into the forum, join up, you know, leave comments on the pages. You know, we've got billions of ways of you getting to speak to us. You can speak to us on MySpace at uh, myspace.com forward slash sittingnow. Um, you can get the show through iTunes. We've got a button, blah, blah, blah. You know all this anyway. Uh, but yeah, no, I can't believe it's episode nine already. Eight, rather, already. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's crazy. So, um, yeah, thanks a lot for listening. We appreciate all the feedback, all the comments we're getting. Um, yeah, check out all the people we have uh, promos for. They're all really cool guys. Um, really nice as well. <laughs> it's always good. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see you next week with our Dean Hagland interview. And uh, hopefully get the show out a bit more on time. Okay, thanks a lot.